1-2-4-0. Let me pray for us now. O Lord God, may my preaching of your word be true. May my preaching of your word be faithful to your intent. And may it, Lord, become effective through the working of your Holy Spirit. And may your Holy Spirit break the hardness of our hearts. May it illumine our minds, our darkened minds, so that we may comprehend the beauty of what you have said and what your Son, Jesus Christ, has accomplished on our behalf. We pray all this through your Son's name. Amen. Gotta wait for the slide to come up here. But the passage that I'm taking a look at today is regarding in terms of faith and works, and it's a taking a look in terms of how Genesis 15:6 has been used by several New Testament people, especially Paul and James here. Now, one of the things that we've recognized that during this time here in the pandemic itself is that we have seen a proliferation of fake products, fake medical products. We have fake COVID-19 tests, fake PPE itself, fake N95, fake hand sanitizers. And then recently I was taking a look at the Washington Post just a couple of days ago that now we also have fake vaccine itself. Now the danger of all of these counterfeit products is that they are not effective in terms of providing protection against the virus, and they therefore endanger the person who is using them. Now, the people who purchased these products, you know, they thought that they would uh, get the protection that they need, that they were relying on these equipment itself to protect and to save them, but the fake products were useless in protecting or saving them. Now, if the fake products itself were useless in terms of saving them, and that is true in the physical arena, how much more so is that true in the arena of our spiritual health? How much more true is that in the arena of our spiritual health? And in our sermon series on our journey of Abraham, Pastor Tim has shown us in terms of how Abraham is presented as a man of faith but yet he's also presented as a man of obedience. And the apostle Paul here uses Abraham as an example to show how we are saved by faith alone, apart from anything that we do. James, the brother of the Lord, on the other hand, argues that faith without works is useless. It is a fake faith. And that kind of faith is ineffective in saving you. So he uses Abraham as an example to warn us that we are not saved by faith alone, but by what we do in obedience to God. So who is right? Is Paul right? Is James right? Or are they both right in their own way? And if so, how can we make sense of them? So what today we're going to do is that I'm going to try to give you a recap in terms of the story of Abraham. Uh, and 
We're going to do a recap in the story of Abraham, and then we're going to take a look at how Paul uses Genesis 15:6 and Romans 4, and also how James uses uh, Genesis 15:6 in James 2. All right, so first we begin with a recap in terms of the story of Abraham. I think I have to really hold this and point it out straight. Okay, in terms here, the recap of uh, story of Abraham here. The story begins here with Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, you know, God appears to Abraham in Torah and commands him to leave his country, to leave his people, and to go to the land that God is going to show to him. Moreover, God promises that he will make Abraham into a great nation, i.e., that there will be lots of descendants after him. Now, in faith, then Abraham obeys and goes, though he doesn't know where he is going. Now, several years later, you know, that probably about 10 years later here, the promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis 12 has still not been fulfilled, especially that of the descendants. So in Genesis 15, God reaffirms the promises that he made to Abraham. In response to these promises, then Abraham, the text says, that Abraham believed the Lord. He believed God. He trusted God that God will, be, will make true on his promises. And God, in response, credits Abraham on that basis of faith as righteousness. God considers Abraham to be righteous because of his faith. In other words, God views Abraham's faith as having fulfilled, as having fulfilled all that God expects and demands of his people. Now, in Genesis 17, then here, God develops further the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 15. And God mandates circumcision as the mark of the covenant that he makes with Abraham and his descendants. And Abraham's faith and obedience is demonstrated in his willingness to circumcise not only himself, but his entire family. Because to refuse circumcision is to reject God's promises. And so Abraham, in obedience, circumcised himself and his entire family. Now, then several more years later, Abraham's faith is again tested and is again demonstrated here. God tests Abraham, asking him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham demonstrates his faith in obedience by offering Isaac up as a sacrifice. So when we see the entire scope, the entire stretch of Abraham's life, we see how he trusted God. Yes, there were times when it was not as robust as we would like it to be, as it should be, but yet his overall life was a life of faith. And he lived that faith in obedience to God. How? By leaving his family in Quran, by circumcising himself and his entire family, and by offering up Isaac when commanded to do so. So that Abraham's life was marked by faith. At the same time, it was also marked by obedience. So that's kind of the brief summary in terms of the snapshot, in terms of Abraham's life that we had looked at so far. Now let's take a look in terms of how Paul actually uses it, how Paul uses Genesis 15:6 in Romans 4. Now, Paul quotes Genesis 15:6 in Romans 4. Actually, the entirety of Romans 4 alludes to Genesis 15:6. But 
probably have to give you some preliminary remarks here and to set the context of Romans 4. All right, some preliminary remarks here. And it begins here with the first part here in terms of 1 to 18 to 320. Now, in 1 to 18 to 320 here, Paul establishes the universal guilt of everybody, meaning that no Jew or Gentile will be justified before God on the basis of anything that they do because everybody stands condemned before God because they can never meet God's standard of righteousness by anything that they do. They lack God's righteousness. Now, Paul is responding to an environment in which Jews were boasting in their works, and they were relying on their works for salvation. And so that faced in this kind of environment, Paul claimed that no one can ever meet God's standard of righteousness and that everybody stands condemned under God's judgment. But there is hope. And so in 321 to 26 here, Paul then declares that apart from the works itself, salvation, God's righteousness, is available to everyone on the basis of faith. And here, in 321 to 26, Martin Luther considers this to be the chief point, the very central place, not only of the book of Romans, but of the entire Bible, in that salvation is made possible by in the gospel, and that the righteousness of God can be attained and is found in the gospel. So in 327 to 31 then, Paul picks up one thread of it, one element in the dense discussion that has happened before in 321 to 26, namely that faith is the only basis for justification. So in 327 to 31, Paul lays out the case that faith is the only basis for justification. And in chapter 4 then, Paul then expands. Paul then expands in terms of the chapter or that section there where faith is the only basis of justification using the story of Abraham. So what we do find that it is in 327 to 31 and chapter 4, they are integrally related. They are mutually informing one another. Now, there's no way uh, that I can explain and that we can work through those passages in detail in the time that we have. So I'm going to basically take a couple of verses from those two sections. Primarily, chapter 3, verse 28, and chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. All right, so I'm going to focus only on those verses here. So we'll take a look at the first part here, which is in terms of Romans 3.28. Paul here says that we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justification, what is it? It is a legal term. And to be justified is to be declared that you are righteous, to be declared that you are just, or that you are right in the eyes of the judge. It is to be acquitted by the judge in a legal sense of the term, in a law court case. Paul is now then saying that a person is declared to be just by faith, apart from anything that they can possibly do to please God. 
In other words, a person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we are saved by trusting, by trusting that Jesus' death is on the cross, is the sacrifice that will atone for our sins before the righteous God. It is the sacrifice that will reconcile us to God. It is the sacrifice that will break down the barrier between us and God, the very barrier that was erected by our own sin. And so that's what Paul says in Romans 3.28, that we are declared to be right before God on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ and not on anything that we have done. Now, in 4.3-5, Paul then further expands on why it is necessary for us to be saved by faith alone with reference to the story of Abraham. So let's take a look in terms of verse 3 here. It says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So in 4.3, in verse 3, Paul uses Genesis 15.6 as a scriptural proof that God justifies on the basis of faith alone. Now, why did Paul refer to Abraham? Why use Abraham? Because as we are seeing, you know, in our story of Abraham, that Abraham was in no position to accomplish God's promise in his own strength. He was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. He and Sarah were too old to have children, and he could not rely on his own ability. He could do nothing to bring about the promise. He had to rely on another person. He had to rely on another person's ability, on God's ability. He could do nothing. He could only receive. And Abraham's faith honored God because he believed that God could do the impossible. By trusting God to provide for him, Abraham showed that righteousness comes about by believing, by trusting rather than by working. Now, in the next two verses, in 4 to 5, here, Abraham then draws out the theological conclusions from Genesis 15:6. He says here, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, when applying Abraham to his argument, Paul says that works can never be the basis of a justification. If works do play a role in a justification, it would mean that our righteousness is an obligation that God has to give to us. It is something that God has to give to us here. Can you remember the first paycheck that you ever received? Can you remember that? I remember mine, you know. I was uh, only 18 in those days. I was in the military, and I was only paid 300 bucks a month, all right? But when I received that paycheck, I knew that I earned it. It was mine. And the army was obligated to pay me for my time and the work that I did. But things are a little bit different in the spiritual arena. You see, our employer is obligated to pay us for the work that we do. But can the creator God who created all things 
can the sovereign God of the universe, who is self-sufficient and who has no need of anything, can this God ever be obligated to his creatures which he created? Absolutely not. Paul doesn't say so explicitly, but the logic points in that direction. As the creator God, God is never obligated to his creatures. Our salvation must then always be a matter of God's gracious gift to us. Hence, God justifies the ungodly. You know, it says in verse 5, God justifies the ungodly, which means then that Abraham at this time was also ungodly despite everything that he has done. He was ungodly. God justifies the ungodly on the basis of your faith, not on the basis of your works. For it is only on the basis of faith that faith is credited to them as righteousness. Works is a matter of doing. It is a matter of trusting one's ability. Faith is a matter of receiving. It is a matter of trusting in another person's ability. Now, for many of us, you know, who have grown up in the church, uh, we're not surprised by Paul's argument that God justifies sinners on the basis of, on the basis in terms of uh, trust alone. You know, hey, ho hum, nothing interesting here, nothing interesting to hear. Move along, move along. But Paul's thinking is actually very surprising, and it is very revolutionary, because. Paul's reading of Genesis 15:6 is very different from the Genesis of uh, from the reading of Genesis 15:6 in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world itself here, Genesis 15:6 is interpreted from Genesis 22. Genesis 15:6 is interpreted from Genesis 22. That's why one of the passage in 1st Maccabees here it says that was not Abraham found faithful not in believing, but in testing. And when he passed the test, it was counted to him as righteousness. So that Genesis 22 then becomes the lens to read Genesis 15.6. And that Abraham's righteousness was based not on his faith, but it was based on him passing the test of Genesis 22. Paul, however, reads Genesis 15.6 chronologically here. And Paul here says, you know, that Genesis 15.6 comes before Genesis 22. So that's why in 4.9, he says here, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised? Was it after he offered Isaac on the altar? No. It was before he was circumcised. It was before he offered Isaac on the altar. And on the basis of that faith alone, that declaration of faith and trust in Jesus, God declared, not Jesus, but in terms of God's provision to provide, God declared Abraham to be righteous because before he was circumcised, before he was tested. So that the chronological sequence, the sequence in time here, validates that Abraham was declared to be righteous solely on the basis of his faith, and then that God justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith. But this is, and there's also another surprising thing here. 
That's another surprising here that God justifies the ungodly. That God justifies the ungodly here. Notice in 4.5 it says that it is God who justifies the ungodly. How can God justify the ungodly? Remember that justification is a legal term? We expect judges to make a ruling according to the matter of the case. If a judge was declared someone to be declared someone who was guilty to be just to quit someone who is guilty, we would say that judge is corrupt, that judge is a crook. You know, even the Old Testament condemned judges who acquitted the guilty. Even God himself said that he would not justify the wicked in Exodus 23. So how can God justify the ungodly? Paul doesn't explain it here. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that when a person who believes in Jesus, he is united with Jesus in such a way that Jesus' own righteousness becomes our righteousness. Jesus' own righteousness becomes our righteousness. So that when God judges us, he judges us according to the reality of the situation. But the righteousness, righteousness by which a person is declared to be just is not that person's own righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness that has been given to that person. So in summary here, you know that, in summary, it teaches us in terms of what Paul is saying in Romans 3 and 4, is that God justifies sinners not on the basis of works, not on the basis of works that are done that they could possibly do, but on the basis of faith in Jesus alone here. In other words, we are declared righteous before God solely on the basis of trusting that Jesus' death on the cross is a sacrifice that will atone for our sins and that will reconcile us to God and that we are saved by faith alone. God justifies sinners not on the basis of works that are done, that they could possibly have done, but on the basis of faith in Jesus alone. That is absolutely clear. But what about James? What about James here? And in James here, James is responding to a slightly different perspective. James is actually responding to a corrupted understanding, to a corrupted understanding of Paul's teaching about justification by faith. And in doing so, James helps to clarify for us what true saving faith is. He helps to clarify for us what genuine faith is and he differentiates it from a fake faith. So we see here, beginning in James 2 here, 14 to 26, throughout this entire passage, James claims that faith without works is useless. He reads, all right, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? No, rhetorical answer, expecting no here. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without deeds is useless. Let me repeat that in verse 26. Faith without deeds is dead. And then here James then uses Abraham as a prime example here 
by faith without works is useless. And he uses Abraham here primarily. And I'm going to check to make sure. Okay. All right. Let's start with here in terms of uh, verse 21 here. It says, It was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, for James, Abraham was justified. He was considered righteous by what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar. And then he clarifies it in verses 22 and verses 23. And you see here, you see that his faith and his actions, they were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. So Abraham's faith and his actions and his deeds and his works, they were working together. Both faith and works were present. Now, when Abraham says that his faith was made complete, sorry, when James says that Abraham's faith was made complete, it doesn't mean that Abraham's faith was defective or that it was inadequate. Rather, Abraham's faith reached its intended goal when he offered Isaac up as a sacrifice. And in this way here, the scripture was fulfilled in verse 23. And the sequence, you know, we had seen before here in terms of how everything plays out is that in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Many years later, then we have Genesis 22. And then Abraham then offered Isaac and therefore fulfilling Genesis 15, 6. Now to say that Genesis 15, 6 or Genesis 15 is fulfilled in Genesis 22 is to say that Genesis 15 is brought to its ultimate significance in Genesis 22. That Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 with its declaration of righteousness found its ultimate significance when Abraham offered Isaac. And that Abraham's faith was manifested, it was validated by his works, by what he did. Verse 24 then gives us the significance here of the story. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And this verse here, this exact verse here, is the pickle that seems to confound how we are to understand that with Paul. And so we put the two together here. You have James 2.24, where James says that a person is considered righteous or justified by works and not by faith alone. But Paul here in Romans 3 says that a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. On the surface, they appear to be quite contradictory. On the surface, they appear to be quite contradictory. In fact, you know, Martin Luther here found it impossible to reconcile Paul with James. And he famously said that if anyone could reconcile them, both he would be willing to give that person his doctor's cap. That's the cap that he's wearing, all right? The cap that signified his doctor of theology, and he would be, be willing to be called a fool. So it's a, it's a true problem here. Now let's kind of divide the problem a little bit further, all right? The problem here is then seen in first part here that there's an apparent contradiction with the issue of faith. 
James 2.24 says that a person is justified not by faith alone. Paul, on the other hand, says that a person is justified by faith, presumably by faith alone here. And I think that the resolution here is that Paul and James are talking about different kinds of faith. Paul and James are talking about different kinds of faith here. When James here, you know, James talks about faith alone. And James, when he talks about faith alone, that is the kind of faith that James has been attacking throughout the entire passage. A faith that a person only claims to have. A faith that is dead. A faith that is bogus. A faith that does not result in works. A faith that is all talk, no action. That is the kind of faith that James is denouncing. But that is not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about in Romans 3. When Paul talks about faith in Romans 3, a person being justified by faith, he is talking about a faith that works. He is talking about a faith that expresses itself in love. And so that there is no contradiction between James and Romans. Now let's take a look at yet another problem here. And the problem here, James says that a person is justified by works. Paul would say that a person is justified not by works of the law here. On the surface here, the works that James refers and the works that Paul refers to, on the surface, they are the same. On the surface, they are the same in that they are works done in service to God. But they are different intrinsically in terms of their motivation. The motivation and origin of these works are different. For James, the works arise from a posture of trust in God to save. It is the kind of works that springs from our faith. It shares the same genetic material as our faith. So that this works here arises from our faith in God to save. But for Paul, the works that he is denouncing is the works that arises from our own faith, from our faith in ourselves to save ourselves, from our faith in our own trust and our own ability to save ourselves, rather than from a faith that trusts in God to save him. So there is a difference here with regard to the works here. But there's also another difference with regards to the idea of justification. And here for James here, James is referring to a justification that of when we appear before God on the final day of judgment itself. Now, in both cases here, justification is God's declarative act that a person is in the right, but they refer to different moments of justification. Paul, when he uses justification language, he refers to the initial declaration of a sinner's righteousness before God when the person declares faith in God. So for example, if you declare faith in God right now, God will declare you just. And that is the kind of justification that Paul is talking about. But when James uses justification, he is talking about the justification that God declares on us when we stand before God on the final day of judgment itself. 
when we appear before God on the last day and have to give an account, that is the kind of justification that, Paul, that James is talking about. So both use justify differently, but they're not contradictory. They are complementary, meaning that our initial declaration of righteousness when we profess faith in Jesus right now should be the same declaration of righteousness when we stand before God on the judgment day. And the NIV tries to bring up this distinction here, you know, that in the way that in NIV renders James 2 using a person is considered righteous, whereas in Romans 3, it uses that a person is, con is justified. It's the same word in both cases, but the NIV renders it a little bit differently to kind of show you the contrast between the different moments of justification. So, you know, in summary of James here, we would say that what James tells us is that we are saved by a certain kind of faith. We are saved by a certain kind of faith, but a faith that is not alone. We are saved by a certain kind of faith that manifests itself in works, all right, that manifests itself in works. Now, putting Paul and James together, you know that we would say that Paul says that we are saved by faith alone. James says that we are saved by a faith that is not alone. When we put them both together, we recognize that salvation is by faith alone, but it is by a certain kind of faith. It is by a faith that is not alone. We are saved by faith alone, but by a certain kind of faith, a faith that manifests itself in obedience and works. That faith here and obedience are so tightly bound, they're so tightly bound such that works is the evidence of genuine faith. Genuine faith is transformative and genuine a genuine faith will invariably produce works. It will give evidence of its existence through works. Genuine faith will give, will give proof of its existence through works. Now, in the 1900s here, scientists knew the existence of subatomic particles. Nevertheless, scientists here could never observe these subatomic particles directly. They, however, realized that they could observe it indirectly and through the effects that these subatomic particles make here. So they kind of developed a bubble chamber and they filled it with hydrogen neon liquid so that as the particles, as these charged particles pass through the chamber, they leave bubbles in their path. They leave bubbles along their wake. In the same way for us too, as we go about our life of faith, our genuine faith will leave bubbles of works in its wake. It will leave bubbles of works in its wake here. And these bubbles of works, they testify to the genuine faith that we've professed. So saving faith cannot be separated from obedience and saving faith manifests itself in obedience and it manifests itself in works. And this then comes to our big idea here, you know, since we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, then let us live out 
let us live out that faith in obedience to God. Since we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, let us live out that faith in obedience to God here. Let me end with just some uh, concluding applications here. You know, our survey here of Paul and James shows us that there's a certain tension in this matter of faith and works, that we are saved by faith apart from anything that we do, yet we are saved by a certain kind of faith that expresses itself in obedience to God. So let me add this, uh, just two considerations here. For those of you who have not made a profession of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, do know that there is nothing that we can do to merit or to earn salvation. The best that we can do will be considered as even as filthy rags before God. But the gospel, or rather the good news about Jesus Christ, is that God's righteousness, his gift of salvation, has been made available to us. And that it can be received by faith, by just, just helpless trust, helpless trust that God has himself provided the means of saving us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So if you have not received this gift of a salvation, I implore you to do so. I beg of you to do so because it's going to be the best thing that you have done. It's going to be the best gift that you would have ever received. But for those of us who have already made a profession of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you this. Are you living out your faith in obedience to God? Are you living out your faith in obedience to God? If there is no desire at all to obey God, if there's no one shred of desire to live a life that is pleasing to God, take heed from the warning of James. Please take heed from the warning of James that the faith you claim to have is probably dead. The faith that you claim to have is probably useless. You can't just say, I was baptized as a kid. I still have my baptismal card with me. That's my passport to heaven. But if your life does not reflect any desire to please God, any desire to obey God, you are deceiving yourself. And just as a fake COVID vaccine will not help you at all, neither will your fake faith help you at all when you stand before God on the judgment day. But perhaps some of you are like me, and you realize how often we do not fully live out our faith. And we find ourselves unable, unwilling to do the works that God wants us to do. Now, if you are in that situation, take heart, because that is precisely what we need to realize. That is precisely what we need to realize. And we need to understand that we can't do the works that God wants us to do on our own strength, on our own ability, in that we need the gospel. We needed the gospel when we came to faith, and we need the gospel in this life of faith. Our initial profession of faith must bear the DNA of the gospel. Similarly, our works must also bear the DNA of the gospel. Just as we depended on the Holy Spirit for the initial profession of faith, so also we depend on the Holy Spirit for obedience 
and works, that our works must bear the fingerprint of the gospel. Our obedience must bear the fingerprint of it, the gospel itself. And so, you know, we fall before our king and say, Lord, I'm not able to do the works that you want me to do. I can't obey you as I would like to do so. Please give me the strength each day by the power of your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you, so that I can live out my faith in obedience to you. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us right now. Oh, Lord God, will you empower us by the Holy Spirit so that we live out our faith in works of obedience to the one who died and rose again on our behalf. Amen. Dr. Lau shared with us today the freeing truth that even though we could never be good enough to get to God, he provided a way. Our deeds won't be enough, but if we put our faith in the deeds of another, the right other, that faith will be credited to us as righteousness. <clears throat> but I don't know about you, my faith isn't always perfect. So as we come before this table together with this glorious truth on our hearts, justification by faith alone, we do well to ask ourselves first an important clarifying question, I think. Namely, is our faith then what God finds acceptable in us? In other words, as we approach God, is it our faith that's what he finds pleasing when he looks at us? Is it our faith that allows us to draw near to his throne? Not exactly. You know, even the reformers who recovered and held up the great idea of justification by faith alone that Dr. Lau preached today would say, it's not precisely our faith that God finds acceptable in us. Rather, it's the object of our faith that God finds acceptable. Now, make no mistake, faith is essential, as we heard today. Uh, it's an instrumental cause of our salvation, theologians would say. But strictly speaking, faith in itself doesn't necessarily save. Faith is the instrument by which we embrace the one who does save. We can think about it like if we all walked right now on, out onto a frozen pond together. Right? Is our faith in the ice that which will save us? No, right? If we are going to be saved, it'll be because of the thick ice. That's what will save us. Right? And it's the same with our eternal salvation. Our faith doesn't save us as much as the object of our faith saves us, and that's what makes our faith essential. So as we come to this table today, that's good news, isn't it? Because if our salvation merely relied on our faith, I don't know about you, but I'd be in a sweat right now, right? Because some days my faith is strong, other days my faith is weak. What if our status before God rose and fell with the magnitude of our faith? Thank God that that's not the way it is. We don't have to put our faith in our faith. We get to put our faith in Christ. 
and he never cracks. He's never shaken. He never wavers, even when we waver. So here at the table, we commemorate not our faith in Christ per se, but the work of Christ, which is the object of our faith. And this is one act of faith that we take here and we'll take here in the coming moments to live out that faith in obedience, praying that we will commune intimately with him as we partake of this meal, strengthening that faith that we have all the more as we are nourished by his presence in these elements. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, to you be praise and honor for giving yourself, for shedding your blood, for letting your body be broken in death for our sake so that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God, bless this bread which we eat together and the cup which we drink together. Let us, through this bread and this cup, partake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who himself is our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Some of you have begun, but let's take out our elements now, the bread first. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, we ask that you refrain and observe. But for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, let's prepare to partake together. body of Christ given for you. Take and eat. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Let's pray once more. Triune God, we thank you for the body and blood of Jesus that were shed to wash us from our sin and make us new. We thank you that even when our faith wavers, the death and resurrection of Christ remain an unwavering historical reality, objectively guaranteeing our salvation despite all our failures in deeds and all our feebleness in faith. We're grateful this morning for this subjective experience of that objective reality in which we've had the honor of partaking together in Christ's body and blood. Please sustain us by your nourishing presence as your spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. I have about two questions here, so let me just uh, run through it. The question here begins, in the original text, do Paul and James use different words for justified faith and works? The answer is no, that 
both James and Paul use exactly the same words in Greek. But for us here is that because we believe that God is the one, is God is the ultimate author of both Paul and James here. And that's why we are striving to see whether there's a way that we can make sense of how these passages, which on the surface appear to be contradictory. The other question that comes out here is that who were the audience here of Paul's message and who was James' audience here? And I think that this is somewhat important to help us appreciate the difference between Paul and James here. Is that Paul was really combating, well, he was facing a situation where Jews were basically claiming that they can attain God's righteousness on the basis of their works. And so that's why Paul is very adamant to say that works itself can never be the basis of their salvation. James, on the other hand, is facing a situation where there was probably a corrupted understanding of Paul's message of justification by faith. And where people are saying, well, you just got to agree. You just have to believe it. But that kind of belief where it is not manifested itself in works, Paul, James would say that that is not true belief at all. All right, so thank you. If there are further questions, you know, that uh, just text me and then I will respond to it in the email that comes out later.